Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Tuesday, the 28th of December, 2010. Baltimore, Maryland. A 16-year-old North Carolina teen had been in town visiting her sister when she decided to nip out to grab some food from a nearby shopping center. The 16-year-old told her sister that she'd be right back and walked out the door. Unbeknownst to her sister, the 16-year-old teenager would never be seen again. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Before we delve deep into this case, I'd just like to thank Magellan TV for sponsoring this episode. I'm sure you've heard of Magellan TV before, especially on my channel, and it's not without good reason. Magellan TV is my absolute go-to for all of my documentary needs. With a wide range of documentaries from space, nature to true crime, and with 4K at no extra cost, it is the perfect place to wind down after a long day while learning something new. Magellan TV actually adds between 15 to 20 hours of brand new content every single week, so if you're worried about running out of true crime content to watch, Worry no more. I've just watched Great Bank Heists, which is a documentary about the greatest bank heists in history. It examines three of the most incredible and ingenious robberies of all time. It honestly feels like the cases discussed in Great Bank Heists were written by a Hollywood studio, but they were very much real events that happened. Be sure to use the link at the top of the description or the link at the top of the pinned comments and get yourself your one month free trial to go watch Great Bank Heists. And after you've finished it, deep dive into Magellan TV's extensive true crime collection. As I've said before, new documentaries like Great Bank Heists are added to Magellan TV weekly, so do not sleep on this offer. Grab your one month free trial using the link below, and thank you to Magellan TV for constantly supporting this channel and making content like this video possible. Now, back to the case. Felicia Simone Barnes was born on the 12th of January 1994 to her parents Russell Barnes and Janice Salis. Her friends and family refer to her as Simone as she grew up, 
but for the purposes of this episode, we will be referring to her as Felicia to avoid any confusion. Felicia's parents separated when she was young, and she actually had three half-siblings on her father's side. Felicia lived in Monroe, North Carolina with her mother, and first met her three half-siblings, a brother and two sisters, when she was five at a family reunion. She had hit it off right away with her half-brother and had become the best of friends with him for the week that she had been visiting for this reunion. Afterwards, though, they fell out of touch. Felicia attended Walter H. Bickett Elementary School in Monroe, North Carolina, and she absolutely excelled at school. She actually ended up skipping from the third grade to the fourth while at elementary school, before she went on to attend Monroe Middle School. Felicia then applied to and was accepted at the Union Academy for her seventh grade year. She was a straight-A student and had even been scheduled to graduate a year early with honours. Despite being so committed to her educational career, Felicia still maintained a great social life. She frequently went to the movies with her friends, went shopping and stayed in communication with everyone in her life via her mobile phone. Felicia was described as having a vibrant smile and loving spirit that captured hearts and changed the lives of many who she met. Even those that she hadn't met, she still left a lasting impact on their lives. Now, thanks to technology, Felicia was actually able to reach out and reconnect with her half-siblings, Dina, Kelly, and Brian Barnes, via Facebook, and had actually gone to Baltimore before 2010 to visit the siblings that she barely knew. Though, despite not knowing all too much about one another, the four siblings quickly bonded. And as Felicia had been intending to move to Baltimore to attend Towson University, the fact that she had siblings in the town that she had reconnected with settled any anxieties over moving there. As winter of 2010 came around, Felicia made plans with her sister Dina to go and spend the New Year's celebrations with her in Baltimore. The sister that Felicia had made these plans with was 27-year-old Dina Barnes, who was a pharmacy technician who had been studying to become a midwife. Dina shared her apartment on Urban Road, located behind the Reisterstone Road shopping plaza in northwest Baltimore, with her boyfriend of 10 years, Michael Johnson. Though, despite Dina and Michael being together for a decade, they were actually in the middle of breaking things off with one another. The rocky couple further shared the apartment with a teenager who, confusingly, is sometimes referred to as Michael Johnson's little brother, and other times the authorities refer to him as Michael's cousin. The teenager's exact relation to Michael isn't super important within this case, but the fact that this teen lived with the couple is of note. Tuesday the 28th of December 2010 started out like any other day that came before it. It was a relaxing day during that weird period between Christmas and the New Year where you've kind of lost track of what day it is and you're just hanging out with your loved ones. But for 16-year-old Felicia, her loved ones and the community of Baltimore, it would be a day that would end in tragedy. Dina had work that fateful day, and so popped her head around to see her sister Felicia sleeping at around 8.45am before leaving the apartment to begin her shift. At around 9am, about 15 minutes after Dina had left for work, Michael Johnson, Dina's boyfriend, turned up at the apartment to pick up the teenager that they lived with, again, either his cousin or little brother, to take him to a different relative's home. Michael, after dropping off his little brother slash cousin, then returned back to the apartment at around 10am to do some laundry and began moving some of his stuff out. After all, Michael and Dina had started ending things with one another, so he was moving out. 
Though, Dina wasn't actually aware of Michael's plans to begin moving his stuff out of the apartment that day. It was at around this same time that Felicia woke up and started texting both Dina and her other half-sister, Kelly. She had arranged with Kelly to come and pick her up after Kelly had finished work to go shopping and to hang out, which was something the siblings did frequently. At some point between 10am and 11am, Michael texted Dina and asked her whether they could get back together. It's unclear what Dina's response to this message was. Then at 11.08am, Felicia sent a text to her sister Kelly asking her to come pick her up early. Unknowingly, this would be the last time that Kelly would speak to her sister Felicia. But it wasn't the last time that anyone would hear from Felicia as at 11.09am, a minute later, Felicia placed a call to Dina and she told Dina that she was alone in the apartment with Michael. Dina then asked Felicia to go onto Facebook and look on there for a photo of Michael and his new girlfriend. It appeared that Michael had already moved on from the relationship with Dina, despite acting like a complete wet wipe and texting her asking her to get back with him, even though he was apparently in this new relationship. Felicia then made two posts on Facebook, which unfortunately are now unavailable but we do know what those two posts said. In the first post, the 16-year-old wrote about how she was at her sister's apartment with her sister's ex. And in the second post, made at 10.30am, Felicia wrote about how she was now feeling hungry. Felicia and her sister Dina then spoke over the phone again at 11.38am and spoke about booking a hair appointment in the near future. It's unclear how long that call went on for, but what we do know is that at 12.23pm, Felicia sent the last text she would ever send to her sister Dina. The text was simply confirming that she had in fact found the photo of Michael Johnson and his new girlfriend on social media. Felicia's siblings would never hear from their 16-year-old sister Felicia Barnes ever again. Kelly tried to phone Felicia between 12.30pm and 1.30pm multiple times, but she received no answer. It kept going through to voicemail. You see, Kelly and Felicia had agreed with one another that Kelly would pick her up at around 1.30pm to 1.45pm, which was after Kelly's shift, and was actually a bit earlier than they had originally planned, as you know, Felicia had asked Kelly to come pick her up early. But as Kelly had received no response from Felicia, she presumes that the plans had been cancelled and so called it off. At 1.04pm, Dina tried to contact Michael Johnson and Michael responded to her via text telling her that he was trying to find a charger for his phone. He further claims that Felicia had fallen asleep on the couch and noted that her phone had been ringing. Michael then allegedly left the apartment at 1.30pm and claims that Felicia had still been sleeping but had stirred when he left and muttered to him that she was going to get up and go grab something to eat after her nap. At 3.08pm, Kelly contacted Dina as she was concerned as she hadn't been able to reach Felicia, though Dina suggested that Felicia might have still been asleep. Now, at some point during this, Michael Johnson's little brother slash cousin returned to the apartment. It's unclear when exactly this happened, though we do know that at between 4.50pm and 5.10pm, Michael returned to the apartment to pick up his little brother slash cousin. And when Michael arrived, he claims that the front door to the apartment had been unlocked and that there was music inside the apartment that had been turned all the way up. According to one source, Michael then texted Dina to tell her that Felicia had been up and moving about in the apartment. It must be noted, however, that it's very unclear as to whether that text message actually happened. 
And it's further unclear whether or not Michael entered the apartment or whether his little brother slash cousin met him outside. On top of all that, it's important to note that this little cousin slash brother isn't really referred to much again within this case. He's, they're not, he's not spoken about again, really, especially when we come much later on in this episode. He's just kind of not spoken to. He's just kind of ignored. Felicia's sister, Dina, then clocks off work and returns to the apartments at about 6 p.m. And instantly, Dina realized that 16-year-old Felicia wasn't there. Dina, as any sister would, immediately began to panic. Felicia was a young girl who wasn't used to city life and who wasn't answering her phone. And as we all know, teenagers, especially in the 2010s, are glued to their phones. I mean, I was a teenager in 2010, and I was definitely glued to my phone. So not a single response for hours from the 16-year-old was extremely concerning. Dina began to phone a whole bunch of people, including their sister Kelly, their brother Brian, and their father Russell. At 6.11pm, Dina tried to phone Michael Johnson to see if he knew anything about where Felicia might have gone, but he didn't pick up the phone. It wasn't until almost 50 minutes later, at about 7pm, that he actually returned her call and he said on the phone that he had last seen her sleeping in the apartment at about 1.30pm. Now I know what you're thinking, how could that be if Michael returns to the apartment at around 5pm to collect his little brother slash cousin? And honestly, I don't have a straight answer for you. There are many conflicting reports for the timeline of events that happened that day. It could be misinformation or quite simply a lie from Michael. We just don't know. This timeline doesn't even become any more concrete um, in later criminal investigations. It, it, later on in this episode, it, it still doesn't become any clearer. Half an hour after speaking to Michael on the phone at 7.30pm, Dina decided to phone the police to report Felicia as missing. A desperate search is underway this morning for a missing girl. Her mom believes foul play may be involved. Police say there is no evidence of that. Kelly McPherson has new information on the investigation. Good morning. Felicia Barnes' family describes her as an A student who was on track to graduate high school early. She dreamed of going to Towson University, but now they have no idea where she is. The Barnes family in Northwest Baltimore is at a loss. They can't find their sister, Felicia, who was visiting from North Carolina for the holidays. Her father. There's no, no runaway. There's no child that's having a bad day or a bad night. We don't feel she even fell in love because, you know, she may not name that character. I think somebody might have taken her. Her sister Dina says Felicia was sleeping Tuesday morning when she left her Northwest Baltimore apartment. A family friend last saw the girl at 1 p.m. Tuesday. Her last Facebook post at 11.30 in the morning mentioned being hungry, so the family wonders if she walked to the nearby plaza for food. She texted me while I was at work and asked me to come pick her up. I started calling her, started texting her, leaving her voicemails, everything, and nothing. My daughter's friends came home. And she, they, the door was unlocked, 
and the music was loud. That's all they can tell me. The 16-year-old has only visited Baltimore a handful of times to see her dad and siblings. Her family tells me that when she left the house on Tuesday, she was only wearing her slippers, and she left behind her money. We don't want to say speculate that something bad is happening, but we feel that she's been missing and somebody has her. Police are growing more concerned after a 16-year-old girl from North Carolina vanished while visiting relatives in Northeast Baltimore. Felicia Barnes was reported missing last Tuesday. Detectives believe Barnes may have been abducted and her kidnappers may have taken her out of state. Police say she was to return to North Carolina today, but she didn't make that flight. Detectives are urging anyone with information on Felicia Barnes to call them immediately. Where is Felicia Barnes? The teenager has been gone for just over a week, and now city police are scouring the area, talking to residents, all on a mission of finding Felicia. 11 News reporter Robert, Rob Roblin is live in northwest Baltimore right now. He has the very latest in these developments. Rob? Well, eight days now, and police still don't know what happened to the teenager. They should just keep on praying and hope she come home safe. Not only come home, but come safe. At the Reisterstown Square Apartments, there's a picture of 16-year-old Felicia Barnes at every building entranceway. Felicia disappeared on December the 28th when she left the apartment where she was staying to get something to eat. For residents here, this is a terrible tragedy. She's a child. And it's just, I don't know, I just pray that they find her. And when they find her, she's alive and well. I just don't understand why somebody would do that to a kid. You know? All right, y'all, y'all, so this is the young lady's missing. If you have any information, I'll just call that free number. Okay, thank you. Today, the search continued. Police went building to building, handing out flyers and knocking on doors, hoping to get any information they can. As far as foul play, we, we can't rule that out. And these... We're basing that solely on the circumstances. We don't have anything else that tells us if there's foul play involved, simply that it has been this long and is so unusual. The FBI and the Center for Missing and Exploited Children are involved in the search. Police say they executed a number of search warrants, but so far have turned up nothing. There's no smoking gun. There are people of interest. There are people of interest, but there's no one person that is of more interest than the others at this point. For Felicia's father, he's praying his daughter will be found. Pray to God that my daughter is fine and she will be she will be found safe. That's the main thing that people can do. Just just keep praying to the highest highest they can and understand that this should not happen to no child nowhere in this country. I appreciate everything everybody is doing. Every moment, it feel like I'm going through labor pains over and over and over again. I don't need this circle. I need my baby found. Missing teen Felicia Barnes' 17th birthday was almost two weeks ago, but her family has decided not to celebrate her birthday until she is found. Every morning I cry, every evening I cry. We have not, I, I have not slept. My whole family from Atlanta to New York to in Baltimore, everyone that knows me has, has not slept. 
Felicia's family says she's a straight A high school student on her way to graduating a year early and already applying for college. Her family and law enforcement officials are frustrated at the lack of leads in the investigation. Two congressmen issued a joint statement asking the public for help. A billboard has been posted along a local highway with Felicia's photos, and a $10,000 reward has been established for information on the teen's whereabouts. Felicia's father says he believes his daughter is alive somewhere in Baltimore. Baltimore police say the missing teen could have been abducted. The search efforts for Felicia were quite simply enormous. Felicia's debit card hadn't been used since her disappearance, and her mobile phone had either been switched off or had broken. It hadn't pinged any cell phone towers. The police established a task force of six homicide detectives to work continuously and exclusively on the case, and they searched more than a dozen different locations that stemmed from leads. But their searches were to no avail. The FBI also quickly became involved in the search, flying over the city of Baltimore with two helicopters equipped with heat-seeking technology designed to pinpoint the heat signatures given off by decaying bodies. Though those searches also yielded no results. Investigators further searched a portion of Leakin Park, which was located just south of Felicia's sister's apartment and was actually known for being a notorious dumping ground for bodies. But again, their searches found nothing. The police believed Felicia to have fallen victim to foul play, or that she had been abducted and taken out of state. But they hadn't received any ransom for her at this point, and they wouldn't actually ever receive any ransom. So, so it seemed as if Felicia had vanished into thin air. On Saturday the 8th of January 2011, 11 days after Felicia went missing, Volunteers trekked through a patch of thick wooded pine trees and along train tracks located in northwest Baltimore. The volunteers searched as light snow fell, looking for any sign of the missing teenage girl. The search had been organised by Felicia's father, Russell Barnes, and it had around 30 volunteers assisting. It was at around this time that Felicia's mother, Janice Salis, alleged that large groups of men often congregated in Felicia's sister, Dina's, apartment though Dina denied these allegations. Now, these allegations from Felicia's mother weren't actually unfounded. They didn't come out of nowhere. Before Felicia's mother had travelled to Baltimore to aid in the search for her missing daughter, one of Felicia's friends had actually approached her in a state of distress. Now, this friend told Felicia's mother, Janice, that Felicia had told her that her sisters had allowed Felicia to drink vodka and smoke marijuana during the trips to Baltimore. And so when Janice arrived in Baltimore, she confronted Dina about Felicia's friend's account that she had allowed Felicia to engage in alcohol and substance abuse. Dina actually told Janice that Felicia might have had a few puffs of marijuana, though Dina would later deny ever saying this in later interviews. It is important to note that Felicia's friends, who had told Janice, Felicia's mother, about this, had never been to Baltimore before. They didn't know anything about the atmosphere or lifestyle within Dina's apartment, but they were still able to describe with accurate detail some of the parties that happened within the apartment. Parties which were backed up by images posted on MySpace. We can see clearly alcohol consumption and drug use within these parties. It must be noted that these images are not condemning at all and are not directly connected to Felicia's disappearance. They simply help in providing the context and the background into the kind of parties that occurred in Dina's flats. Whether Felicia ever partook in these parties cannot be verified or confirmed. We only have her friends' accounts, information shared with them by Felicia, who might have exaggerated the truth. 
I also want to say that this in no way is demonizing the use of marijuana or the use of alcohol. It's just part of this case that Felicia's mother believed that something went wrong when they were at, maybe at one of these parties, maybe some kind of substance abuse gone wrong or something to that effect. On Saturday the 9th of April 2011, almost four months after Felicia went missing, the police closed part of Patapasco Valley State Park, I'm sorry if I butchered that, as they begun a new and intensive search for Felicia. The police hadn't received any specific tips that led their searches to the state park, and only said that their investigation had led them to the park, which, to be honest, is kind of contradictory because you wouldn't go to the park if you didn't have a lead or a tip, you know, so make it make sense. Anyway, over 200 police officers combed through Patapusco Valley State Park, searching for any sign of Felicia. At 12.30pm on the 9th of April 2011, a volunteer group that had been assisting the authorities in the search stumbled upon a partially decomposing body. Had Felicia Barnes finally been found? The investigators took a closer look at the remains and realised that the body that had been found was not that of Felicia Barnes, but rather that of a fully dressed male. Later that same day, searchers also found a bunch of animal bones. But that was it. No new clues in Felicia's disappearance. After a tough weekend, Baltimore police are going to have to start all over again, taking a fresh look at the disappearance of Felicia Barnes. The teen from North Carolina went missing while visiting family right here in northwest Baltimore. And yesterday, hundreds of officers from across the state joined volunteers for a massive search that came up short. ABC 2 News' Cheryl Connors is here to tell us where do the police go from here, Cheryl? Well, Jamie, volunteers also handed out flyers around the northwest neighborhood where Felicia Barnes disappeared. But the unprecedented search turned up no clues. So come Monday morning, it's right back to the drawing board for detectives. The most well-coordinated effort to date. Acting on a tip, Baltimore police organized a search at Patapsco State Park right in between Baltimore and Howard County. Actionable intelligence information has led us back to uh, Patapsco State Park. How the information was learned is kept quiet, but the effort here on Saturday shows it must have been credible. 500 people helped in the search for 16-year-old Felicia Barnes, a team of agencies from the Civil Air Patrol, law enforcement across the state, the FBI, DNR, students at Coppin State University, and more than 25 trained dogs. We have absolutely no doubt in our mind that something terrible has happened to her, and we're working very hard to figure that out. Felicia Barnes disappeared on December 28th while staying with her sister in a northwest Baltimore apartment. Police have conducted over 30 interviews, searched homes, vehicles, and many other areas of interest. But Saturday's effort was the largest, and after 10 hours, a dead end. We're very much back at square one. We have no uh, solid intelligence in terms of uh, Felicia's whereabouts. Crews searched along the perimeter of the park, focusing on vacant buildings. Some articles were found, but detectives ruled out any relation to the Barnes case. The extensive ground search takes them right back to the beginning. Not a trace after more than three months, leaving many questions for Barnes's family, police, and the community so willing to volunteer. It's frustrating. It's incredibly frustrating, this case, because we've been at it for three months now, and um, we're not very far. 
And unrelated to the Barnes case, searchers did find a man's decomposed body in the park. It was handed over to the medical examiner's office for an autopsy and identification. Police say Felicia's disappearance has torn apart her family, and they will continue to investigate every tip that comes in. Cheryl Connor, ABC2 News. The male body discovered in Patapisco State Park during the search was later identified to have been the remains of 55-year-old John H. H. George. It was determined that he had died of natural causes and exposure and had been living at a makeshift campsite, which was where his body was found. He had been estranged from his wife, who hadn't actually reported him as missing, as she didn't even know that he was missing. We can only hope that John's loved ones have been able to find closure and find comforts in saying goodbye. At 7.30 yesterday morning, two troopers were crossing the Conowingo Dam on Route 1 when they were flagged down by persons uh, at the dam who indicated there was a body floating in the water of the Susquehanna River. Um, the body was spotted uh, on the Harford County side of the river, and later that morning, about 10 a.m., Natural Resource Police Department uh, officers were able to remove the body of a female from the water. After an on-scene examination by police and in forensic investigators, the body was taken to the office of the chief medical examiner uh, in Baltimore City. While the investigation uh, was continuing, um, another body was reported below the dam, that'd be to the east of the dam, about three or four miles away. That second body was recovered about 2 p.m. Uh, the same day yesterday. Uh, this, these were boaters who spotted that. Uh, the Natural Resource Police Department officers uh, recovered that body also. Both bodies were found unclothed. The distance between the locations of the bodies was about three to four miles. Uh, autopsies were conducted on both bodies today at the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. Doctors used dental records to positively identify the body of 16-year-old Felicia Barnes uh, this afternoon. The cause and manner of death of Ms. Barnes is still pending. The medical examiner is conducting further tests and forensic examinations. Uh, the male has not been identified. Uh, his cause and manner of death has not been determined, but the medical examiner has indicated that it is a black male. He's six foot four, 240 pounds. Uh, Maryland State Police Homicide Unit investigators notified police throughout the region about the recovered bodies and we're now working with the Baltimore Police Department homicide detectives and the ongoing investigation they had with uh, Felicia Barnes. As you know, from the very beginning, from December 28th of last year, when young Felicia Barnes went missing in Northwest Baltimore, we've drawn on the resources of federal, state, and local partners uh, to try to bring this case to uh, closure. Uh, we've worked closely during that time with the Maryland State Police, and so um, detectives and uh, our partners were very intimate in our efforts. We're going to continue to work uh, as hard now um, as we've worked all those days since December 28th. And our goal simply is to bring closure uh, to Felicia Barnes' family and uh, figure out what, what happened and uh, uh, hold those responsible accountable. 
On the 28th of April, 2011, Felicia's friends and family gathered at a vigil held outside of the apartment complex where Felicia had last been seen. That same evening, mourners gathered at a church in her hometown of Monroe, North Carolina, for a memorial service. The investigators, though, were seemingly at a loss. What happened to Felicia Barnes? How had she ended up at the dam? Why? On the 4th of May 2011, the Department of Maryland State Police published a press release that contained information learnt from Felicia's autopsy. Quote, the autopsy conducted by the Office of Chief Medical Examiner determines the manner of death to be homicide. A cause of death was also determined, but police investigators are not releasing that information because it is an important part of the ongoing investigation. The investigators began to turn their attention to the last person to have seen Felicia alive, Dina's boyfriend, Michael Johnson. Though it appeared from this point on, the investigation went very quiet. Six months after Felicia had gone missing, her family and friends rallied in front of the Baltimore City Hall in the hopes of bringing more media light to the case. Despite this, the investigators had little progress to report. In July of 2011, the FBI filed documents in the US District Court to obtain search warrants for Felicia's email accounts and Facebook accounts, and the accounts belonging to three other people. This was all filed as part of a child sexual image investigation. Obviously, I've rephrased that term so that I can upload this video on YouTube, but you can gather from what I've just said what the investigation was, and investigations into the sexual exploitation of a minor. The exact details of this are strictly confidential for obvious reasons, but the authorities had reason to believe that within Felicia's accounts was evidence for their investigations. On the 31st of August 2011, Felicia's family posted an open letter to the Baltimore Police Department that expressed their deep concern about slow developments in the investigation into Felicia's death. The open letter was accompanied by a petition signed by many, though it didn't seem to spark any pushes or breakthroughs within the case. And by the time the one-year anniversary of Felicia's disappearance, December 28th, 2011, came around, the investigation had seemingly stalled. There had been no new leads, no new developments. On the 25th of April 2012, an arrest warrant was issued in connection to this case. An arrest warrant for Michael Maurice Johnson, Dina's boyfriend, the last person to have seen Felicia alive. At the hearing on Friday the 27th of April 2012, many details in the prosecutor's theory emerged. The prosecutors alleged that 28-year-old Michael Johnson had asphyxiated Felicia in the apartment he shared with Felicia's sister Dina before moving her body using a 35-gallon plastic tub. A neighbour to the apartment had allegedly seen Michael Johnson sweating and struggling to move a container from the apartment on the day Felicia went missing. The tub in question has never been recovered, but tests revealed that a person of Felicia's size could fit into a 35-gallon plastic tub. It was also revealed that Michael had exchanged 500 phone calls and text messages with Felicia between July and September of 2010, and that Felicia had actually told a relative that Michael had made her feel uncomfortable. As for a motive, one wasn't presented. And as for why Michael had been charged now after a 16-month investigation remained unclear. Further, it was revealed that Michael Johnson had made conflicting statements about the container the witness had seen him with. 
He had missed work that day, the day that Felicia went missing, and first alleged that he had used the container to move clothes and electrical equipment before changing his statement to say they had used the container to move weights. I'm not sure when in the timeline this fits in. As I said earlier, the timeline never solidifies within this case. It's never clear exactly. It also emerged that Michael Johnson may have been a flight risk, as he had told his girlfriend, the new girlfriend, and his brother slash cousin that he had been considering fleeing the country and moving to Brazil, a country which the United States doesn't have any extradition powers. Michael Johnson was held without bail until the first trial. On Wednesday the 20th of June 2012, Michael Johnson pled not guilty for the murder of 16-year-old Felicia Barnes, murder in the first degree, and the trial date was set for the 11th of August of that same year. This date was then rescheduled to the 21st of January the following year in 2013. It had been rescheduled due to the prosecution handing over digital images of roughly 17,000 documents from their investigation and entering it into discovery. In late December of 2012, Michael's defense team filed a motion in the Baltimore Circuit Court, which detailed their intent to call an alibi witness who claimed to have seen Felicia Barnes alive in Cecil County in the days after she had gone missing. And on the two-year anniversary of Felicia's disappearance, on the 28th of December 2012, the prosecutors filed a notice that they intended to play a video at the trial that depicted Felicia Barnes, who had been 16 years old, quote, intoxicated and engaging in sexual relations with Michael Johnson. A motion to close the courtroom for when that video was played accompanied it for obvious reasons. And so in late January, the trial against Michael Johnson commenced. The prosecutors in their opening statements told the courtroom of how a witness would testify that Michael Johnson had shown him Felicia's body after she had died in a plea for help though the defence countered that by claiming the witness to be unreliable. The following picture was then painted. Felicia Barnes had connected over social media with her long-lost half-sisters, and they quickly became close, the prosecutor said. But one of those sisters, Dina Barnes, saw her more as an adult girlfriend than a little sister, and during her trips from her home in North Carolina to Baltimore, allowed her to drink alcohol. On one such night, Felicia Barnes and Michael Johnson, Dina Barnes's boyfriend of 10 years, took off their clothes and streaked around an apartment complex. Then the three of them, along with two of Johnson's brothers, went to a nearby school where they engaged in, quote, naked touching and kissing. It was all recorded on video. The prosecutor said that the video, which the prosecutors planned to play for the jury during the trial, showed Michael Johnson touching Dina, but as he does so, he's looking at Felicia. Quote, that night was a changing point, the prosecutor said. The defendant was now interested in Dina's sister. Defense attorney Russell Neverden said that the prosecutors had made a rush to a judgment, pinning the crime on Johnson because he was the last to see Felicia Barnes alive. In part, they have argued in pretrial motions because of the personal troubles of the lead detective in the case. Quote, this case is not about sex, lies and videotape, the defense said. I'm not going to delve into what they mean about the actions of a lead detective in this case, but just quickly, this lead detective was basically charged with assaults um, during his searches within this case. It, if I were to talk about that too, this video would be really, really long, but and it wasn't super important to Felicia's story. So um, I'm not going to talk about it in this video, but 
just so that you know, there was a lead detective in the search efforts that was charged with assault due to his the manner in which he conducted his searches. But prosecutors for the first time revealed that a man would testify that he saw Felicia's body inside the apartments after being called by Johnson, who asked him for help. The prosecutors said the man whom she identified as James McRae, a convicted criminal being held at the Charles County Detention Centre, came forward with the information after Michael Johnson's arrest. The defence dismissed McRae as, quote, a jailhouse snitch who can't tell Michael Johnson from Michael Jordan. The defence said Michael Johnson was seen moving items out of the apartment because, with the relationship coming to an end, he was instructed by Dina Barnes to move out of the apartment by the end of the year. They say investigators found no DNA evidence and that assigning the cause of death to asphyxiation is an assumption because there were no injuries to the body. It became clear to all those who partook in the trial against Michael Johnson that, on both sides, it was circumstantial evidence brought against Michael Johnson. The defence pointed out inconsistencies and flaws, while the prosecutor claims that facts pointed to Michael Johnson as being the only reasonable suspect. As the keen true crime watchers here may have noticed, this is problematic. You cannot convict somebody without proving they are guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And the evidence applied within this trial does not support that reasonable doubt. However disgusting and gross the evidence may be, it is still circumstantial. That's not me defending this person, mind. I am simply discussing the essence of a fair trial. Despite this, the jury began deliberating on the 10th day of the trial. It took the jury two days to reach a verdict. They found Michael Johnson guilty of second-degree murder in the death of Felicia Barnes. He was acquitted on the initial charge of first-degree murder, but the jury reached a unanimous verdict, but the jury reached a unanimous verdict on murder in the second degree, a charge that carries a maximum sentence of 30 years imprisonment. But that is not where this case ends. In February of 2013, Michael Johnson's defence attorneys asked the judge for a new trial on the basis that the prosecutors had made improper statements to the jury and withheld information. The primary arguments made focused on the crucial witness named James McRae, who had testified that Michael Johnson had contacted him to help in disposing of Felicia's body. The defence argues that the prosecutors tried to bolster James McRae's credibility by making improper statements in their closing arguments. They alleged that the prosecutors withheld information about James McRae being held in Baltimore County on felony charges that were dropped mysteriously the day after he spoke to investigators about Felicia's murder. They further stated that the jury's verdict after two days of deliberation went against the weight of evidence. Quote, the only evidence presented constituted a collaborative guess by multiple witnesses that the defendant was involved in the murder of Felicia Barnes, they wrote in a motion for a new trial. Quote, the only actual connection between the defendant and the killing itself was one witness whose credibility falls well below that of which any reasonable person could believe was telling the truth. The circuit court granted the motion for a new trial, throwing out the murder conviction on the 20th of March 2013, based on a finding of a Brady violation. According to pagepate.com, a Brady violation is what happens when the prosecutors in a criminal case 
failed to perform their constitutional duty to turn over helpful evidence to the people they have charged with crimes. Everyone has the right to due process and a fair trial. Because of that, when the government has evidence suggesting a person is either not guilty or deserves a lower sentence, the prosecutor has an obligation to disclose that evidence. Often called the Brady Rule, this requirement originally comes from the US Supreme Court's 1963 decision in Brady v. Maryland. Later court cases have made the rule even stronger, requiring prosecutors to turn over this evidence even if the defense hasn't requested it, and even if the prosecutors claim they didn't know it was in their files. The case was then reset for a new jury trial, which began on the 2nd of December 2014. On Friday the 19th of December 2014, Michael Johnson's team moved for a mistrial, and the court initially denied this motion for a mistrial, but they actually later indicated that they would take the weekend to think about the motion. And so the state rested at the close of proceedings on that same day. And after the court excused one of the alternate jurors, Michael Johnson's team made a motion for judgment of acquittal. The trial judge then suggested that the motion for judgment of acquittal would be addressed the following Monday. On Monday the 22nd of December 2014, the court announced that they were going to grant the motion for mistrial and discharged the jury. They rescheduled a retrial for the 9th of March 2015. Following that, on the 14th of January 2015, Michael Johnson's defence team filed a motion to dismiss indictments on the grounds of double jeopardy, which the circuit court heard on the 20th of January 2015. The court then struck its previous grants of the mistrial and granted Michael Johnson's motion for judgment of acquittal. All charges against Michael Johnson were dropped. On the 2nd of February 2015, the state filed a new indictment, though Michael Johnson's team moved to dismiss this too. A hearing took place on the 12th of March 2015, which resulted in the circuit court granting Michael's motion for dismissal, and subsequently the case was dismissed. The state then appealed this dismissal to the Special Court of Appeals. Uh, we have breaking news this afternoon in a case we've been covering for six years now. Uh, Maryland's second highest court has ordered a new trial for the man accused of killing North Carolina teenager Felicia Barnes, who disappeared from her sister's Northwest Baltimore apartment in 2010 and whose body was found floating in the Susquehanna River in 2011. Michael Johnson was charged with first-degree murder in Felicia's disappearance about a year after her body was found. He had a jury trial and was convicted of second-degree murder, but a judge ruled that prosecutors had failed to turn over key information to the defense in order to new trial. At the second trial, which took place in early 2015, uh, once again, a judge ordered that uh, prosecutors had made an error in order to mistrial, but then he reversed himself and granted a motion for judgment of acquittal. He acquitted Michael Johnson of the charges. Uh, Marilyn Mosby, uh, who was in her first month as a prosecutor at that time, uh, vowed to stick with the case. She refiled the charges. They were then dropped by the same judge. They appealed the case to the state's Court of Special Appeals, which today issued a ruling saying that the judge was wrong, that when he granted a mistrial, uh, that was it. He couldn't then go back and reconsider his motion for judgment of acquittal. So what we know right now is that the appellate courts have ordered a new trial for Michael Johnson and the killing of Felicia Barnes. We don't know yet whether they will appeal, um, and we're going to have more on this story on our website as it develops. The third trial in this case against Michael Johnson was ordered by the second highest court in Maryland, and charges reinstated. 
It was determined by a three-judge panel that the circuit judge back in January of 2015 had made a procedural mistake when he had granted a motion to acquit Michael Johnson of second-degree murder. Michael Johnson's defense team then appealed this order of a third trial to the US Supreme Court in an effort to block it. They claimed that the special appeals court decision was greatly in error and violated Michael Johnson's constitutional rights. Quote, the government, with its vast resources, ought not be permitted to try him yet again after the trial judge explicitly found that the evidence was legally insufficient to establish that he was the criminal agent. On the 2nd of October 2017, the US Supreme Court announced that they won't be taking up the case of Michael Johnson, sealing the order for a third trial in the Baltimore Circuit Court. The third trial began on the 7th of March 2018 and the prosecutor's case remained focused on the fact that Michael Johnson had been the last person to have seen Felicia alive and that he had been seen by a neighbour struggling to move a large storage container out of his apartment building, believing Felicia's body to have been inside of the container. They also focused on the fact that Michael Johnson backed by the text messages and phone calls, had been attracted to Felicia and had become obsessed with her. The inappropriate interest in the 16-year-old ultimately saw Michael Johnson seizing the opportunity when he was alone with her, according to the prosecutors. A new team of three prosecutors replaced the trial team that had handled the first two trials. According to an article by Justin Fenton in the Baltimore Sun, which, by the way, we wouldn't have been able to delve so deep into this case without Justin's articles and coverage, so a massive thank you to him. The key to the prosecution's theory that Michael Johnson was obsessed with Felicia Barnes is a video made in June of 2010, in which he and the teenage girl went streaking. Later in the video, along with Felicia Barnes' sister and Michael Johnson's girlfriend at the time, Dina Barnes, and Johnson's younger brother slash cousin, the four engaged in, quote, naked touching. Prosecutors say the video marks a turning point in the sibling-like relationship between Michael Johnson and Felicia. Quote, that's when the obsession with Felicia Barnes began, one of the prosecutors said. The prosecutor, who stood in front of Johnson and occasionally looked directly at him while speaking, said phone records showed that Michael Johnson began to more frequently text and call the teenager who was back in North Carolina. Meanwhile, his relationship with her sister was ending and he was moving out of their shared apartment as Felicia was visiting for the winter break. On the day she went missing, Michael Johnson called out of work and went to the apartment where Felicia Barnes was staying, to Dina's apartment. At around 1pm, Felicia's cell phone shut off and Michael Johnson texted her sister Dina that, quote, your lame sister fell asleep. Around that time, Michael Johnson was seen by a neighbour sweating profusely as he moved a storage container out of the apartment, the prosecutor said. The prosecutor went on to say that Michael Johnson wasn't involved in search efforts after the first day, nor did he text Dina Barnes. The defence said Michael Johnson, quote, didn't have anything to do with the disappearance and death of Felicia Barnes, and that investigators don't know, quote, how or when or why she died. The teen's coat, purse and phone were gone, as were a pair of new Ugg slippers that she'd received for Christmas. The defence then said a much more reasonable and rational conclusion is that Felicia left voluntarily on her own for innocent reasons, and then something bad happened. They said Michael Johnson was honest and consistent with police about his actions that day. He called out of work because he didn't want to perform a particular job he had to do that day. 
The storage container carried items he was moving out of the apartment. His cell phone never hit towers anywhere near the Susquehanna River, which was where the dam was, where Felicia's body was found. He also stopped communicating with the Barnes family because he'd been told to stay away, the defence said. Quote, Your Honour, his behaviour is perfectly reasonable and understandable. The judge challenged the prosecutors to show evidence that Michael Johnson had murdered Felicia Barnes and disposed of her body. The evidence was being weighed up to establish whether there was actually enough for a third trial to proceed. Quote, is there any evidence of the defendant going at or near the Susquehanna River, the judge asked. No, said Michael Dunty, one of the prosecutors. How did the body get up there? Peters asked. I don't have an answer for the courts, Dunty said. After seven years of questions, a one-time suspect is acquitted in the murder case of Felicia Barnes. This was the third attempt to convict Michael Johnson for the 16-year-old's murder. The North Carolina honors student vanished in Baltimore in 2010. Her body found months later. WJC is live. Ava Joy Burnett tells us the judge was not convinced there was enough evidence to convict Johnson. Well, thank this case had been going back and forth for seven years. Michael Johnson was even convicted of murder. But after today's acquittal, he's now a free man. Michael Johnson said nothing as he walked out of court and then drove off. A judge acquitted Johnson in the Felicia Barnes murder trial. The 16-year-old disappeared in 2010 while on break in Baltimore from North Carolina. Barnes' half-sister once dated Johnson, and he'd long been a suspect. But on Friday, the judge said there wasn't enough evidence to convict the 34-year-old. One of his attorneys cried after the ruling. We grieve for the Barnes family and this tragedy, but convicting an innocent man is not justice for Felicia Barnes. We are grateful that this seven-year nightmare is over for Mr. Johnson and his family. This was the third time he went on trial for her murder. The first conviction was overturned. Then came a mistrial and now an acquittal. Felicia Barnes' father was present in the early stages of the four-week trial, but not on Friday. Do you feel the evidence is strong enough? Are you still confident? Always confident. Always confident. She's always confident. State's attorney Marilyn Mosby said she spoke with the family after the judge acquitted Johnson. I am extremely disappointed by today's decision, but the judicial process has played out, and we have no choice but to follow that decision and to respect that decision. State's attorney Marilyn Mosby also said they believe they were pursuing the person who actually killed Felicia Barnes, but she said they also have to respect the judge's ruling. Reporting live tonight, Avajoy Burnett for WJZ. Michael Johnson was acquitted of all charges relating to the murder of Felicia Barnes. Amongst the grief, frustration, and roller coaster of a trial that followed the death of Felicia Barnes, some good did emerge. A bill aimed at improving coordination between law enforcement and community groups when a child disappears was proposed to Maryland's House and Senate. The bill was named Felicia's Law, in memory of the 16-year-old, and it requires state officials to publicise a list of missing children and annual statistics surrounding missing children. It also states that officials may also keep a list of groups of volunteers to help with searches and that local law enforcement must try to work with them. And in April of 2012, Felicia's law passed in the Maryland House and Senate. It is a law that provides extra safety efforts and allows the police to use more resources to help close future missing children cases. We can only hope that this law can provide some sort of closure for Felicia's family 
despite the case being unsolved. I cannot begin to fathom the pain and torment the trials and investigation into Felicia's death must have been for her family and loved ones. It must have been absolutely devastating and the fact it was dragged on, the trials, the three trials dragged on for so long, I just cannot imagine. My heart truly breaks for them. Let me know what you think of this case down in the comment section below. Be sure to follow me over on Twitter for more true crime content. My handle is at It's Joshua Miles. There's a link in the pinned comment and in the description. Also join our true crime Discord server. If you want to join our little Discord community, which is 100% free and hang out with some really lovely folk who talk about true crime, their pets, knitting and more, and to get involved in helping to make these episodes, jump over to joshuamiles.co.uk forward slash join and join us today. A special thanks to Magellan TV for sponsoring this episode. Be sure to grab your one month free trial using the links below. With all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. A special thank you to all of my Patreon members for helping keep this channel afloat, but especially thank you to my lead investigators for all of your support. If you'd like to support this channel for less than $5 a month, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash it's Joshua Miles. For less than $5 a month, you'll get early access to videos and access to scripts and also polls on cases. If you or someone you know has been affected by issues covered in our programming, including this episode, then please use the link in the description for information, advice and support.